Hi, everyone, and welcome to Behind the Numbers. This is the program where we dig deeper to understand what really matters most in business. I'm Dave Bookbinder. I'm a senior director at CFGI. And today, if my guest happens to look familiar to you, it's probably because you've seen him on Fox Business, CNBC, uh, or any of the other business channels like Bloomberg uh, talking about markets. I'm super excited to welcome Bill Stone, who's the Chief Investment Officer at Stone Investment Partners. Bill, welcome to Behind the Numbers. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. I know normally, well, let me just start, I'm getting excited here. Let me just <laughs> ask you to tell the audience a little bit about who you are, and then we'll jump in. Sure. So you mentioned it. I founded Stone Investment Partners, but I've been in the I guess wealth management, asset management business for really my uh, entire career along the ways at different firms. And, uh, you know, I always tell people, you know, one is I love it. Two, I really don't know how to do anything else. So I really have no choice. <laughs> well, I'm super excited to have you in the program because I know normally when you're doing the other big network shows, they have you on to talk about a market event, where the stock market's going, what should you do today. It's really about the numbers in the moment. So super excited to go behind the numbers with you and give you a chance to unpack some topics that you don't normally get to do on the, the other programs. That said, why don't we start by talking about your why? Why did you get involved in investment management? So, you know, first thing was interesting is that I didn't know anything about it. My parents or my mom was a, is a retired teacher. My dad is a retired biochemist. Uh, I actually read about investing in the library. I guess I was uh, what you would call a geek in the day. Maybe still am. Um, I'll deny it, but okay. Uh, <laughs> and then by, you know, honestly, partial luck, I got recruited to work for Solomon Brothers in New York. Um, Partly, I had read the book Liar's Poker and decided that that was like, you know, it was the king of Wall Street at that point. And wow, could I get there? And I made it. Um, but what really changed things was while I was there, actually, I was only there a couple of months, uh, they had a big scandal and Warren Buffett had to come in uh, and frankly save the firm. And I got you know, I knew of Warren Buffett, I think, and I know I did before then, um, but I particularly got interested in him. So that really, I would say, kind of sent me on my path. Yeah. And I want to spend time talking about things that will resonate with investors more so than necessarily what should I buy and how should I plan around, call them short term kind of things. Mm -hmm. I want to take the long view here. And let's start with investor mindset. So uh, in full f transparency, I'm a guy who subscribes to magazines with pie charts and so forth. And I've got an MBA <laughs> in finance investment management. So I wanted to be you at one point and, and couldn't hack it or whatever, or found <laughs> something else. But growing up, the mantra is always buy low, sell high. And I know there's a lot of momentum investing and people want to be churning and buying the latest and greatest thing and chasing you know, the, the bright, shiny object. What's your perspective and, and counsel for folks regarding the right mindset to bring to a, a longer term investment strategy? Yeah, and I think, you know, I will say one quick thing about momentum. You know, I believe in price momentum. I believe it works. I think you have to systematically implement it. Deep down in my heart, that's not really what I love. Like, I actually believe it works. Um, but what I really think you should do and what I think works long term and is a, a long term investment style is, is really to look at a stock like a company. So, you know, you actually look at it like you're owning a piece of an entire company uh, rather than just a piece of paper. And I think, you know, that's one thing I, I certainly lifted that from, you know, Warren Buffett and Benjamin Graham that taught him, I think that's a, a big difference in maybe the way, you know, what I think us quote unquote true investors look at things versus um, somebody who's frankly speculating. Yeah. So Ben Graham and Warren Buffett, uh, iconic value investors. 
So when you think about the mindset and part of that component of mindset has to be growth versus value, mm -hmm. where, where does that all play in? So I guess I, I kind of say there's, there's a couple things. It gets complicated, but we'll keep it simple uh, to a point is to me, everything is value, right? It, and I'm sure you would agree with this value matters, right? What you pay for oh, yeah. something matters. Like in terms of, if you're trying to figure out what your end return will be, it matters what your purchase price is. You know, you can buy a phenomenal company. If you pay too much for it, it still may not work out for you, right? It actually may have great earning, you know, all those things. But if you pay too much to start with, it still may not work out. Um, so that differentiation is a little bit different. I think, you know, the way the, you know, indices and, and so forth do it, you might, you end up with companies that, you know, say are growing, uh, I think they earnings or sales, um, more than some of the other ones in the short, I'll say in the short run. And that's how they kind of differentiate them. I'd say that's the way I kind of think about it where right now, anyway, to kind of go back to at the moment, or frankly, you know, for a while here, a couple of years has been really companies that have been able to grow revenues in particular. Obviously, you hope that turns into <laughs> earnings in the end, right. um, but uh, can grow sales in the short run anyway here uh, that they think will turn into earnings have way outperformed companies that have had, a, I'd say, a harder time doing that. And maybe they can't grow sales that well. Maybe their earnings have grown okay because they've you know, bought back stock, done other sorts of, I'll call it financial engineering. Mm -hmm. That's, I'm not I hope that doesn't sound negative. It, some, some of it is, but you can use it in a positive way as well. Sure. You talked about thinking about your investment ownership as if you're owning the business. Mm -hmm. Can we drill into that a little bit more and, and help folks to understand how they can not only adopt that kind of a mindset, but how do they actually do that in practice as opposed to just thinking about companies as pieces of paper? I, I think, I guess I would say two things. You know, one is, you know, you look at the numbers, right? And that's maybe more of a, a piece of paper, but I also try and understand how they, how those numbers came to be, right? Like if you're earning, let's say excess profits, if I, you know, you continue to have good earnings, I want to know how your business to a point works. Obviously I can't know everything, but I want to learn kind of what, uh, what works. I'll, I'll give you an example of the other part because maybe it, it becomes more clear. The other thing I'm interested in is, um, you know, I think Warren Buffett talks, again, I use a lot of his mm -hmm. stuff, you know, a moat, you know, I'm interested in a moat around a business, you know, kind of like the moat around a castle to protect it. So I like to think about how can they continue to earn these outsized profits? Because usually these companies that look so attractive, they have great profit margins, et cetera. I automatically go, well, that's going to make competitors interested in it. So how can they possibly ward off those competitors? There's a lot of ways to do it. I'll give you, you know, my one that maybe it's a physical moat. Uh, those are actually relatively rare, but it's kind of interesting. So you get companies where, um, and I'll just, I own this one personally, but I haven't bought it in a long time. So this is not a recommendation. It's just an interesting one is Vulcan materials. They provide the aggregate. So the, the rocks, et cetera, to build roads and, you know, anything you need for building, they provide that. So that doesn't sound like a very exciting business, right? Like it's pretty, right. pretty mundane. But what's interesting about it when you actually look at it as a business is it costs so much to move that aggregate that it's not worth it for another competitor that has a quarry further away to compete with them. So if you have this quarry that's close and it's cheap to get the aggregate out of it, they have a built-in advantage that is essentially, I, I don't know of a way you can beat it, right? Like you just, you cannot actually beat it. I suppose you could sell it under cost or something like that if you're the competitor, but it, 
that gets pretty expensive and eventually they're going to wear you down, right? Because if you have a net lower cost, it's, it's going to work. So that kind of thing, again, I used one that's a little bit more rare. You don't necessarily yeah. see physical barriers, but you, you look for some, you know, but that gets to looking underneath the surface and looking as you actually own this business. Yeah. And that's a great point about it. it's a mundane business, right? Because I think most folks might think about a, a moat as more of an intellectual property kind of a thing. And many times uh, it patent is. Patent protection, right. things like that. Are, are, the, are the IP protections as effective as moats? I mean, I think they can be. As you know, you can get around some of those. You know, you can get something kind of adjacent, do something similar that maybe doesn't actually legally come across. I think, you know, it's a thing you have to spend time on, right, as you decide. You know, some of it's ecosystem too, right? Like, so you may have this this uh, intellectual property, but you also have built up enough of an ecosystem that no one wants to leave, right? I kind yeah. of use Apple as an example of, you know, you can't exactly, you know, they have sure patents on a lot of that stuff, but at the end of the day, they've got enough people that you actually want to be, most people or many people want to be in their ecosystem, and it's, they also have switching costs, right? Boom. You don't want to yes. leave. Um, those are the things you have to think about, not just the numbers of, well, yeah, the numbers are great right now, but the future is obviously if you're buying is what you're actually buying. I didn't buy the past company. I'm buying the future company. Right. Switching costs is huge. My daughter was trying to persuade me to, to change phone providers. And um, I'm committed to Apple because of so many other devices and other things that we have. So I get it. Yeah. I was never, I mean, I, I don't, again, don't want to make a commercial for Apple. I don't think the stock looks that great at the moment just because it's very expensive. But I was never an Apple fan, but I'm telling you, you know, I'm I'm the same way. I don't. I have a bunch of Apple stuff now, and I don't want to leave either. Right, <laughs> Bill. For folks who are watching and listening, and they want to learn more about you, or how maybe you can help them and they can work with you. How's the best uh, way for them to reach you? See, the best way is uh, my website, StoneInvestmentPartners.com, and it has all my contact information and more more things about me. You can even sign up for my weekly uh, newsletter, et cetera. There, that's good stuff. Definitely sign up and check him out. Um, I want to continue this conversation in the broader context of investors, and let's talk a little bit about passive investing versus active investing. So depending on who you're talking to, each one adamantly argues their point of view, right? And the passive side, it's index fund investing. It's supposed to be low cost and, and take the emotion out of it. Where do you stand on, on this topic of investment, whether it's passive or active? You know, I actually think there's even a third, which is systematic. I don't want to throw a, something into the mix, but let's talk about active okay. versus passive first. So active, or let's go with passive first. So I think one thing about passive, I am a fan. I think you, it makes sense for actually many people to do quite a lot of passive investing and maybe all. Um, certainly if you're not quote unquote an investor, it's probably the place you should be. Now, de going deeper behind the numbers in it, Thanks for that. Uh, <laughs> free commercial. Uh, <laughs> passive is a decision. So those underlying indexes have their own uh, rules. So they're yeah. rules based as to how they actually construct those indexes. So it matters. I mean, you'd be shocked maybe, or you may not be, but you know, the viewers might be shocked how different some of those can work out. I'll, I'll give an actual concrete example. So when I look at small cap stocks, the really two indexes that most people know are, most people know Russell 2000. That's kind of the one that I would say is the most quote unquote popular. Mm -hmm. The other one is the S&P 600. So Russell 2000, just as a quick, you know, this is not, it's not a perfect definition, but it's essentially the smallest 2000 roughly companies within their kind of Russell universe. So you get the smaller companies. 
SB 600 is their small, smallest companies kind of in their quote unquote universe, but they also have an added constraint that the committee uh, look, actually, that's the other part. SB 500 actually has a committee that decides what goes in there, but part of their, they do have guidelines as to what should go in. And one of their guidelines is they want the company to have made money over the last 12 months. And in small caps, that is a big difference. So there's a lot of small cap companies that do not actually yeah. make a profit. Um, now, interestingly enough, the over the long, maybe this is not it, this is probably not a surprise. Over the longer period, the SP 600 has outperformed the Russell 2000 by a large amount. But interestingly enough, this year, the Russell 2000 has done extremely much better than the S&P 600. I wouldn't have necessarily guessed that if you hmm. if you say what's going on in the world, but it's just an interesting side note. But it, I just kind of make the mention because it is an active decision as to what you actually do, even in indexing. So there's an active component within this so-called passive investment. And then when you move into the funds and what they own in terms of how they invest and, and what indexes they're benchmarking to, I guess you get even a little bit more, I'll call it noise. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, yes. And so then let's talk a little bit about active versus passive. So I think, you know, one is where do you, where, where would you maybe think about adding active managers or a manager that doesn't just follow kind of the rules of a, of a passive index? Um, I think in places where you thought the manager had some sort of skill, I'd say the other part is you maybe don't want to take the same risks that the index takes, right? Like it has to own, or most of them. I mean, most people, when they think of passive, most indexes are market cap weighted. So you're going to have the most of the biggest companies and, and on down. So maybe you don't want that risk profile. Maybe that doesn't suit what you're trying to do. Um, you may have a specific objective of getting more income, uh, you know, maybe dividend income. That one to me is a good example. That's a place where I'm kind of interested right now because um, a lot of the either indexes, a lot of the indexes in dividend focused have a real problem right now due to COVID um, because a lot of them have rules that the comp maybe the company can never have cut their dividend or, you know, mm -hmm. has to have a rising dividend over some period. You know, they have all sorts of rules like that. COVID really threw a wrench in it for a lot of companies that are frankly were are and were very good companies, but they may have had to cut their dividend or even, you know, take away their dividend for what I'll argue is probably going to be a short period of time. We didn't know it at the time, of course, sure. but, um, but at least right now it looks like you'll see a lot of those dividends come right back, but because they're rules-based in these indexes, a lot of them, they can't own these companies, which I think is probably an opportunity for people to be a little more active in some of those spaces. Yeah, that's a great point because that's the fine print that most of us don't bother to read when we just scroll through and hit accept or I agree. Right. Yeah. This is a good spot to take a commercial break. So we're going to pause folks in the back in the production area. Let's roll a commercial here. We'll pay a few bills. We'll be right back on Behind the Numbers. Don't go anywhere.
Hey everyone, welcome back to Behind the Numbers. I'm Dave Bookbinder, and today we are talking with Bill Stone about all things investing. Uh, Bill, in the first segment, we just ended towards the commercial break. We're talking about active versus passive investing, and you alluded to alluded to something called systematic investing, but we didn't have time to cover that in that segment. Do you want to explain what that is? Sure. I, you know, I kind of think of it as the the middle middle between active and passive. So passive, I'm going to say most people we talked about earlier, they they define that as market cap weighted. That's kind of become the the definition is the largest companies in market capitalization become the largest weights. So systematic is in between. So what systematic investing has done is take some of the things that, frankly, active managers have done over the years to try and outperform. And, and frankly, I would argue many of those things do actually work over the long term and applied them rules-based, though, in a systematic way. So it's kind of that middle road. So the other part that happens in, in when you're looking at these investments is your passive investments you know, thinking about implementation costs are going to be the cheapest, right? So you're going to have the yeah. internal fees. Well, they better be the cheapest, by the way. So <laughs> um, they should be, and they, you know, they should be the cheapest. How about that? Systematic is going to be a little bit more expensive, probably. And, but then active is going to be the most expensive because you've got a lot of individuals there. Systematic, you've just built the rules and you go from there, right? Yeah. So that is usually, we talked about it for a minute earlier. So you'll find, People also might call it factor investing. Um, those factors, again, are really just things that active managers have found and, 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 frankly, academics have found do actually produce better returns or better risk-adjusted returns, whatever you, mm -hmm. you want to say over time. So examples might be with long histories of outperformance are value. So buy the cheapest stocks have actually, you know, they have long periods of not working, but we do know over the absolute very long periods, they do work and are frankly the best performing way of, to do things. Uh, secondly, uh, price momentum. So just really buying the best performing stocks over some past period. Most people talk the past year, but there's different periods you can use there. Um, that actually has worked over hundreds of years. It's what people use, frankly, before we really could have all the fundamentals of things. Uh, and I, I look at it that it essentially works on human behavior, right? People love to, you know, own a winner. And so you chase these things up. But of course, there's sometimes the negative side of that. But the, the good part about momentum stocks or momentum investing is it, it because it's rules based, you're going to exit them when they're not when they start not working. That doesn't mean there's not times of severe pain, by the way, yeah. it's just one of those things. Um, maybe another one that maybe people have heard of is um, uh, low volatility. So they pick the stocks that generally have the lowest volatility, so the lowest amount of you know price movement, right. um, so that it gives you a smoother ride. That probably gives you a better historically might have given you a better risk adjusted return. Doesn't necessarily give you a better absolute return, but mm -hmm. um, it's another way of doing things. So I probably beat that into the ground, but I think it's a I, I think it is an interesting place. I also think it is you know to me what has been amazing in this industry has been how you can these other two tools now. And I, I'm speaking of the passive and the systematic. I think you're missing something if you don't think about using those in your toolbox, even if you continue to use some active, because again, you can get way less expensive yeah. uh, kind of implementations and you get the true kind of beta, beta, we call beta market exposure, and then you try and get something more 
I'll say interesting or what you're trying to accomplish over on the active side, but your all-in cost gets cheaper. Right. So when you subscribe to magazines with pie charts, um, <laughs> you, you get the list of the latest and greatest funds and who's performing, and you, you read about what I would call the rock star portfolio managers, the ones that have really hit the home runs in recent years. And I remember a long time ago, I, I would follow those rock stars, and it seemed like every time I invested in their fund, I just happened to buy in at the year where they had an off year. How do you process their historic performance and their, their glory as, as a forward investing strategy? So actually, it's a great, uh, that's a phenomenal question because it's an extremely hard question. So um, I think that the first thing is, I love to look at things, you know, this is a, actually, this is more of a Charlie Munger thing than a Warren Buffett thing. So Charlie Munger is Warren Buffett's uh, partner in crime in, uh, at, at Berkshire Hathaway. So he always talks about inverting the problem. So what I can tell you for sure is how not to pick managers. Okay. So how not to pick managers is to base it on their three-year track record, which is oddly enough the way a lot of people will try and sell you a manager. Yeah. Is they'll tell you, oh, this guy is, you know, whatever. We won't pick on any particular no, person. Right. Uh, Joe Schmo has done awesome over the past three years. You should really own it, right? Because it's right. going to do great for you. So that's what I can tell you. But so then, but I will tell you a little bit about that and how I look at it. So um, I think the first thing, the most important thing for me is I actually dig into the manager's process. So how do they actually, well, one, say that they pick the stocks that they're investing in. Or it could be bonds, but let's focus on stocks right now. Any sort of securities, but anyway, stocks. So that's the first thing. And then, so I... I'm lucky enough, or maybe whatever, I read a lot of academic papers and have spent a lot of time in this business. So I generally know what it what should work and what doesn't work. Obviously, they probably have a pretty good track record, so it seems to work. The other part we can do is uh, I can actually go quantitatively and rip apart their returns and see what's actually driven them. So I can see what they owned and whether it's got value characteristics, price momentum characteristics. And what I do is also match up and say, well, what you're telling me how you pick stocks, is that actually how you seem to be by the you yeah. know, behind the numbers, uh, picking, <laughs> picking the stocks? I know. I'm, I'm going to get a bonus for this. Absolutely. Um, so I think that's another part. Um, but I always go back to, let's just assume that they're actually doing the, what they say they're doing, is can they actually replicate that? And there may be times, honestly, a lot of times, my the best managers sometimes that I pick are actually when they're probably not doing very well at that very moment relative to, say, the S&P 500, because their style is out of favor, because things go in and out of favor. It's kind of, yeah. uh, you know, right now, we were talking about earlier, growth is very much in favor. So what you'll see is a lot of these managers have growth characteristics. That's the way they've always picked stocks, are doing phenomenally. And then the ones that underneath it are really more value-oriented. They tend to pick companies that are cheaper relative. Um, they they can't get out of their own way. Yeah. Um, but it's not them, I don't believe. And I didn't. A lot of that stuff is cyclical. It's but it, it can be a long time in between. You just you know it's good to mix those together, but know what to expect. To me, the time you get rid of a manager is when they didn't do a what they said they were going to do. And frankly, I get nervous if they say you were a value oriented manager and you're you're blowing the doors off. That's frankly going to get me very nervous because. 
I, it's borderline impossible to do. Style creep, <laughs> style creep yeah. comes to mind. They may be investing in some more growth-oriented things and not sticking to their, their mantra. Yeah, and then getting whipsawed is, frankly, to me, the worst thing. Uh, is you know somebody gives up on their style just in time for it to then switch back. Um, doesn't happen necessarily right away, but that's actually what I'm looking for yeah. if, if they really deviate from, from what is the, what at least I hired them to do. Yeah. Bill, what's the best way for folks watching and listening to get in contact with you if they'd like to work with you or pick your brain on a topic? Best way is really go to my website, stoneinvestmentpartners.com. All my contact information is out there and you can, you can get me through their email and all that's there. Great. We have about five minutes to go here uh, in, in the program. Uh, we've covered a lot of time flies. You're, You're, not having fun. You're not kidding. It always <laughs> does here. Uh, but I want to try and squeeze in a couple more things because I think it really is, is important for investors to, to get your insights on these things. I want to talk about emotions because it, when to buy, when to sell, what to buy, how does emotion impact one's investment mindset? I think you need to try and remove as much emotion as possible. I actually think that's why some of these systematic investment styles um, are actually very good for people uh, because the really your emotions are not likely to do anything good for you. You know, think about it deep down. We were built with this uh, fight or flight mechanism, so when we come under pressure, a lot of times we want to either you know, like I say, either run away or fight. We're not thinking rationally. Um, so I would say, you know, it's even, I'll go, give an actual concrete example of um, rebalancing in portfolios. So you say, well, I want to be 50%. So I've looked at everything. It makes sense for me to do 50% stocks, 50% bonds. So what I usually recommend is people rebalance back to that every year. Right. And what does that do? Well, that actually makes you buy what has not been doing well and sell what has been doing well, because say stocks, let's say stocks had not been doing well, uh, you, they, you would be down below 50% in stocks relative to the bonds. You're forced to buy those stocks and get back to your 50%. Most people don't want to do that, right? That's uncomfortable. Like, right. You're going to say to me, stocks stink. They're doing horrible right now. Why would I want to buy into those? Or at least that's the typical emotion, which you really have to fight. Yeah, discipline for sure. We were talking before we went on the air about the the dot com bubble. Uh, as a valuation professional, I remember we were we were valuing businesses not based on traditional metrics. We were looking at eyeballs, and we were joking about the infamous sock puppet. <laughs> so I want to I want to ask you about bubbles in general, and and how can investors know when we're in one and and not get caught up in the euphoria. Yeah, and it's very tough. I think the way I define a bubble is perhaps a little—it's—it's uh, it's harder, much harder to get to a bubble in the sense that I feel you have to have completely irrational prices to say that it's a bubble. So, I mean, I think the dot-com, you know, like we used to pets.com, things like that, were a legit bubble. Um, so, I think you—the one thing that also I would say keep in mind about bubbles is. For a true bubble or for it really to work, there usually has to be a kernel of truth to it, right? So think about the dot-com bubble. There really was a kernel of truth. Yeah. The internet changed our lives. I mean, imagine what, what has happened since then. But it's kind of to our original point, it matters what you pay for things. Yeah. So you could have you know, gotten into a great company, but the fact is if you paid 200 times sales, it still doesn't 
likely work out well for you. I mean, there's a possibility it does, but the odds are getting much lower. Um, and especially back then, you had companies that were coming, you know, you saw it too, coming out with business plans that, you know, speaking of think, you know, looking through and you're like, there's just no way. I mean, literally their business plan is spend as much money as possible. You're like, uh, you know, I, we, we, the revenues will come later. And that's like, yeah, yeah. Not, not so much. That's why today I think is harder because... I don't think you can declare necessarily growth stocks a bubble. Like I think about the stocks that have been doing very well in this market. So, um, you know, Microsoft, Amazon. I don't know. I mean, they look very expensive to me, but I wouldn't call them a bubble because they are phenomenally good businesses. I always use Microsoft. It doesn't get much better than Microsoft. I think as a business owner, I have a monopoly essentially on desktop software, and everybody who gets my software. It costs me almost nothing to produce that software one more time. It, 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 it just, when you're thinking through the annals of businesses, it doesn't get much better. There you go. <laughs> Two things resonated there with me. Uh, one, we learned with hindsight that yes, you can buy pet supplies online and it makes sense. <laughs> and, and two, I remember distinctly having a conversation with the CFO back in those days where we were doing the valuation analysis for his business. And he made the case very strongly that the more he loses, the greater his valuation should yep. be. Yep. And my head nearly exploded. This is not what we learned in business school. No. Uh, about 30 seconds. I'm going to ask you one more to squeeze one in here. I know we're coming up on an election season here, but elections are, are cycles and they're analogous to bubbles to some degree. What, what's your advice for folks on buying, selling, coming into an election season? Most of it is you should just ignore it when it comes to your investments. I think the only part that I'd say is, you know, and I try to make sure I say this is not a political statement. It's just if it's a completely democratic sweep, they They've said they're going to likely raise taxes on corporations. All other things being equal, companies are worth less than they were the day before when taxes are raised, right? Because you have to look at it like the net money coming to the owner. Doesn't mean it's the wrong thing to do. I'm just saying that yeah. is typically part of it. Um, but that being said, I wouldn't make any decisions based on politics. I mean, honestly, it's been a loser to make those decisions. Yeah, exactly. Great advice. Bill, I, unfortunately, we're out of time. I can't thank you enough for joining us thank today. Thank you for having me. It was, uh, a, it was a pleasure. Hopefully, we'll have you back again and lend your insights yeah, to, to us. Yeah, we've been talking all things investing with Bill Stone, who's the chief investment officer at Stone Investment Partners. And I want to thank you all for watching and listening. Please subscribe and uh, Hit ring the bell if you're watching on YouTube so you can stay in contact with us and know everything that we're up to. We will see you again next time on Behind the Numbers. Meantime, take care, everybody.